0: Hello, waterfowlers! It's the old timer coming to you with episode twenty-eight. I'm recording this on a Monday, uh, which yesterday was Father's Day, and I had a blessed Father's Day. I can recall my dad; he's now passed over the great divine and waiting for me in heaven if I make it. But he was a great father to me and great father to my sister Dorothy, who lives in Albuquerque. You know, I grew up hunting and fishing taught by him he came from a a family that lived up around Raymer, tennessee and they had about 200 acres they actually inherited that 200 acres from the uh blankenship side of the maternal side but anyway they were cattle and uh hog traders and that meant that they would go out and buy cattle and hogs and just keep them long enough and feed them long enough to where they could trade them and sell them for a profit. And they only farmed about 18 acres, and that was behind a mule and a plow of corn, and that's what they fed them on. But the old dad taught me how all, the, all that stuff, and he grew up grappling. If you don't know what grappling, that's where you go into a swamp area uh, and, and catch catfish by grabbing them in the hands and, and pulling them out and, and tying them off and all that stuff. But he was a great dad to me, and I hope you have a great father. All you children out there, obey your fathers. And if the fathers, you take care of those children. It's a tough world we live in today. So love them and put God in their life also. Now, here is episode 28. It's going to be Echoes of the Ancients Ones. And with this podcast, I'm going to take you back millions of years and then go forward through the ice age, the last ice age, and where we are, not, are now in a, in a glacial period, a warming period. So here we go with the Echoes of the Ancient Ones, episode 28. Breathed into this world by a creator, modern man entered at a unique time in geological history, with his very existence revolving around a style of living, hunting, and gathering. That, to improve survival, he studied the ways and habits of, of wildlife through countless eons and developed a deep understanding of the environment in which he operated by learning the most effective ways to kill game, big game, gather plants, seeds, roots, etc., and harvest waterfowl. Those that did not or could not acclimate suffered the disastrous consequences of extinction, because the climate and environment demanded an adaptable lifestyle that assigned shifting emphasis on the most accessible resources. The traditional view is that free-roaming big game hunters, following their herds during their annual migration, subsisted on this food source almost entirely. That is, until the herds began declining and subsequently became extinct. To the contrary, it was waterfowl that allowed anatomically modern man to persist and endure harsh climates and environments, because over millennial or longer timescales, migratory waterfowl were highly adaptive regarding their breeding, migratory and wintering distribution and habitat. Waterfowl supplied not only meat and eggs, but feathers and skins and wherever they gathered, other sources of food were readily available for consumption. And once hunting shifted to different resources, like waterfowl and other birds, modern man did not have to devote his activity full-time to labor-intensive big-game hunting. It allowed time for socializing and time to reflect, forecast, conceptualize, and invent new toolkits and improve upon them to settle down. It sparked human ingenuity and eventually tools and resources were used for trading purposes with others hundreds of miles away. It wasn't long before modern man was able to populate large, empty and unfamiliar landmasses and after many generations, a sedentary lifestyle evolved. It was about 2.5 million years ago, at the beginning of the Pleistocene period, and that ranged from 2,500,000 years ago to 11,700 years ago, that the first crude stone tools were fashioned for hunting. From that point on, from one generation to another, techniques and knowledges were handed down, crossing the frontier of place and time. Let me pause here and just tell you what the Pleistocene period was. The Pleistocene was characterized by fluctuations in climate causing repeated advanced and retreats of glacial ice. For the past one and a half million years, there have been 17 glaciation periods, and during the last 750,000 years, eight. For the last 900,000 years, 80% of North America has been in a state of glaciation, and the last cycle of cooling was known as the Wisconsin glaciation, the last interglacial And the interglacial is a warm period between colder glacial periods. So the last interglacial prior to the present one, which we're in now, it began 12,000 years ago. It originated about 130,000 years ago and ended 116,000 years ago. It was a period when Arctic summers were moderately warmer than today and the sea level was 20 feet above its level today. So, continuing on, tool-making clearly shows that the early inhabitants had a degree of insight and planning in anticipation of future need. Consequently, it was hunting and gathering that sustained and supported modern man and provided the first affluent society through fire, language, and the innovation and advancement of tool-making." Modern man was the only creature that had a language and could communicate effectively, could make fire and use fire for cooking, warmth, and protection, monumental achievements. Not knowing what a remarkable journey he was embarking upon, modern man left East Africa about 60,000 years ago, going northeast to populate most of the world, replacing an earlier, not yet anatomically modern man, who had lived in Europe for 200,000 years and whose last domicile was in Iberia, around Gibraltar area, in the midst of the last ice age about 35,000 years ago, an area rich in wintering waterfowl as extensive wetlands existed northeast of the rocks and along the coast. So that was their last domicile around Iberia, Gibraltar area. Here in the Iberian countryside, earlier archaic, Hunters, gatherers, and modern man co-mingled, hunted, and competed alongside each other, with the former eventually fading into oblivion, eliminated by climate change and competition, as the earlier one's skill in hunting was substantially less than that of the modern man, with this allowing a much higher population density. Modern man's mobility and net technological advantage gave him a competitive edge, which would leave him with no close relatives for the very first time. As stated earlier, much time and attention by archaeologists to what prey modern man hunted was given to big game, their life stories written in tools and bones, while small game was neglected. Even less scrutinized was avian prey and what part quick-flying waterfowl and other birds contributed to subsistence and survival. Their life story never written because bird bones, being small, brittle, and often pneumatic, were comparatively scarce in fossil collections while modern man's material and paraphernalia rotted and decayed away, such as springs, snares, loops, nets, etc. Natural tools that can serve poorly in an archaeological context. Nevertheless, once archaeologists paid attention, Numerous caves and campsites across Eurasia offered a wealth of information that man had been consuming waterfowl for hundreds of thousands of years. It was especially true around the Mediterranean Sea during the Middle and Upper Paleolithic time. where wetlands, ranging from tiny coastal lagoons to vast deltas, appeared at regular intervals around the long coastline. Now, I just mentioned... uh, Paleolithic, and to give you a little history on that, the Middle Paleolithic is also known as the Middle Stone Age and dates between 200,000 to 40,000 years ago, while the Upper Paleolithic is sometimes referred to as the Late Stone Age and dates between 40,000 to 10,000 years ago. So, continuing on, obviously quick flying waterfowl and fast running small game required greater skills, special techniques, and more advanced tools than the slow-footed mammoths and the other large prey, with the elusive waterfowl being the most difficult to hunt and obtain, except when molten as when they could easily be harvested. By expanding his diet, by adding small game and waterfowl, the population density of an environment restrained by climate instability could be increased, which eventually opened a doorway to a new epoch, the Neolithic period, which started about 10,000 years ago. The farming of grain and herding happened then. With these advancements, the total domination of the hunting and gathering way of life was now broken to some extent, and the development of communities and ultimately villages and towns followed. Still, gathering and hunting, modern man entered the ice-free northeast Eurasia more specifically the region between the Altai Mountains of southern Siberia and the Amur Basin and Oshkosh region of the Eurasia Far Far East between 40,000 and 45,000 years ago from the west and the Altai Mountains. Relatively speaking, the winters were mild with light snowfalls and long growing seasons. Now this is in southern and eastern Siberia. Through migration over many years, modern man arrived by following the flight path of migrating waterfowl from the East African Rift to the Levantine region, filled with lakes and wetlands. Because of its geographical location, the Levantine Corridor has been used many times as a land bridge between Eurasia and Africa. From here, they followed the migratory routes of waterfowl northeastward to the Black and Caspian Sea abundant with the incredible thunderous wings of millions and millions of waterfowl after arriving from the East African and Asian flyways before making their way to the Lake Baikal region of southern Siberia, which was rich with waterfowl. As sea levels dropped providing moisture for the ever-expanding ice, this formed the Bering Land Bridge, which served as a thousand-mile-wide ecological refuge where exchange of fauna and flora took place across the two continents of Asia and what would become North America, with most occurring west to east. This probably due to the prevailing westerly winds, which were especially strong during the time in which waterfowl migrated. In fact, the Beringer region, that's the Beringer Strait, that's where it comes from, Beringer region, also served as a distribution corridor between the old and new world during previous glacial cycles beringia an enormous area covering the arctic ocean borderland in northeastern siberia on the west and parts of eastern beringia which was alaska which became alaska and the yukon territory was never covered by continental glaciation from a period of 5.3 million years to 12,000 years ago. It was partially because of a lack of moisture that it did not become glaciated. Therefore, eastern Beringer maintained many characteristics of the Siberian environment, and that's just what I stated, very mainly ice-free. Because of its separation from the rest of North America during continental glaciation, and is best seen as part of this region than as part of North America. So it's saying the uh, Yukon and Alaskan uh, Territory, which was Eastern Beringer, was more part of Western Beringer than as part of North America. The last ice age reached its greatest expanse 18,000 years ago when ice covered much of Northern Hemisphere, including Canada and the northern tier of the United States advancing as far south as the approximate present position of the Missouri and Ohio River. Once settled in the western part of Beringer, which once again is eastern Siberia, in the early years of their occupation, modern man watched as waterfowl left the surrounding wetlands and migrated west and south, the regions from which modern man had left years ago to settle in eastern Siberia. The word auspicious from Latin is of pre-Christian origin and means to divine the future by watching the movement of birds. So they watched as many juveniles dispersed during the fall, not along the well-established ancient western and southern migration routes, but in other directions. They knew the juveniles were looking for their own breeding sites that would lack competition. They took notes over the years that they kept returning the following spring from the Northeast, while the numbers who had dispersed in different directions in previous years declined yearly until their dispersal ceased in those directions, it became a recurring theme those leaving for the Northeast in the fall and returning from the same direction in the spring. These they knew were going and coming from a diverse ecosystem that would meet their needs for survival and reproduction, and thus meet modern man's needs. On an enormous journey to become the most dominant species on Earth, modern man embarked upon a colossal wanderlust beginning about 16,000 years ago, which led to the colonization of Eastern Beringer, that's Alaska and the Yukon Territory, and subsequently the rest of America. They traveled the dusty mammoth trails northeastward and followed the migratory waterfowl that they had observed through the years, hunting them on their annual migration as waterfowl stopped for rest in the wetlands of western Beringer. They shattered them from the old world across the barren land bridge until they came to eastern Beringer, once again Alaska and the Yukon Territory, where waterfowl spent their winters. For about 20,000 years, modern man and waterfowl traveled back and forth across the bridge. Their passage south to the New World for man, however, blocked by ice these hunters gatherers brought with them their two kits italicists nets traps snares etc and that word italicists i have a little trouble with it's spelled a-t-l-a-t-l-s in ice-free central alaska three sites demonstrates the role waterfowl played in an inhabitant slice swan point broken mammoth and mead all clustered in an area northwest of the Tanana River at the eastern range of Ice-Free Beringer. The Mead site dates around 14,000 years ago, while Swan Point's earliest occupants date to 14,300 years ago and was repeatedly occupied until late prehistoric time. Like the ecosystems everywhere that sustained man during this time, these three sites offered a plethora of habitat and game mammoths, bisons, elk, small game, and migratory waterfowl. The latter reflecting expansion of freshwater aquatic habitat in a rapidly thawing Beringer's landscape at a time when the mammoth population was declining towards extinction. At Broken Mammoth, the largest cache. A bird's remains were in the early deposits, with 65% of the bones belonging to the tundra swan and 15% to three species of geese, speckle bellies, snows, and canadas, in order of frequency. 10% belonged to dabbling ducks, mallards, pentails, teal, gadwalls, and wigeons. Now, this is because they couldn't fly from so the southern part of the United States, what became the United States, across the ice, so they couldn't get up to Canada like they let them do now. So they had they were bottled below the ice, in the in what became the United States. Now Broken Mammoth was occupied as early as twelve thousand three hundred years ago, and was occupied at least two other times in this history. The last occupation occurring approximately twenty-five hundred years ago. Numerous sites other than these are scattered across Canada, Alaska, and the lower 48 states. 18,000 years ago, the earth warmed. The ice slowly retreated. About 12,500 years ago, the edge of the ice sheets had retracted northward to the present day Canadian border, leaving behind mountains, rivers, lakes, potholes and inhospitable bearing land while waterfowl bottlenecked south of the ice expanded relatively rapidly and each species tracked its suitable environment northward into canada especially the Perry pothole region from northwestern alberta southeast to southwestern manitoba where shallow depressions left by the retreating laurentian ice sheet known as prairie potholes attracted mallards northern pentails shovelers, gadwalls, blue-winged teal, American widgeons, canvasbacks, and redheads. I may expand on this just a little bit. Uh, during the Pleistocene, which I mentioned that previously, ice sheets advanced four times to cover much of North America, with waterfowl following the southward retreat of their habitats. At the beginning of each interglacial period, that's a warming period, the ice sheets receded northward, with waterfowl readily extending their northern spring migration to follow the retreating ice sheets, with significant population expansions or fowl taking place. The interglacials were all at least as warm as the present day, but we're in the interglacial period of the warming. So in addition, towards the meltwater flooded downstream towards the Gulf of Mexico, flooding the Mississippi River. During this time, the Delta extended further south into the Gulf than now. As the warming continued and the ice sheets melted, the sea level rose, leaving the old river valley filled with alluvium and an elaborate network of rivers, sloughs, cypress tupelo breaks, and swamps. 24 million acres of floodplains in its entirety. During this time, temperatures were relatively cool below the ice sheets, and for that reason, conditions were more effectively wet so that many of the regions closed to basins filled with water, such as Lake Bonneville in western Utah and eastern Nevada, Lake Hahontane in western Nevada and eastern California, and other smaller lakes or shallow marshes in central and eastern Nevada, southeastern Oregon, and the southeastern California. The Great Basin was a great reservoir for waterfowl in the earliest of times. Furthermore, near the close of the late Pleistocene, with the world continuing to warm, during merely another interglacial period, the melting ice resulted in the complete flooding and disappearance of the barren land bridge about 8,000 years ago and the reappearance of Barren Strait, which now separates Asia and North America by about 50 miles. Over the years, the Barren Strait has served as a barrier to flora and fauna exchange. What is more, the massive ice sheets split into the Cordillarian and the Laurentian Tide ice sheets, with the latter centered over Hudson Bay, while the Cordillarian, smaller of the two great continental ice sheets, was centered in the Canadian Rockies. Between them was an ice-free corridor, like the La- barren land bridge. It was known as the Mackenzie Corridor that crossed the province of Previs Day. Alberta, and eastern British Columbia. The corridor stretched approximately 1,500 miles from the limits of glaciation along the Arctic coast in northern Yukon to northern Montana. The northern portion encompassed the Mackenzie Mountains, the northern continuation of the Rocky Mountains, and the adjacent valley of the Mackenzie River, which today is one of the major flyway routes in the world. The Mackenzie, Great Lakes, Mississippi Valley Flyway, which tunnels fall migrants through the corridor before they fan out in all directions. The corridor, in its former years, was partially covered with remnant ice sheets that formed large and small lakes, making passage for humans impossible, but not for waterfowl, which took advantage of the partial openings and began their spring return to eastern Beringer from the present-day southern 48 states with Beringer providing them with new, ample breeding grounds and resources that were conducive for extensive fuel buildup in preparation for long flights for mi- migration southward in the fall. Thus, ancient flyways of North America were re-established that had been suspended when the ice was one big sheet. The inhabitants of Alaska and the Yukon, being acute observers of nature, Noticed, and as soon as the corridor was tolerably passable, about 13,500 years ago, they followed at different times the migrating waterfowl southward, knowing that highly productive ecosystems awaited them south of the corridor. Habitats that would provide a rich diversity of important species. Fish, reptiles, mammals, and waterfowl all followed. Migrating through the ice-free corridors linking southeastern Beringer to the northern plains of North America along the eastern boundary of the Rockies, these early colonists gave rise to the nomadic Paleo-Indians who spread throughout North and South America over thousands of years and many generations and from whom all Native American cultures descend. While passing through the corridor, they feasted on waterfowl Harvested at rest pools and lakes, for big game did not venture there due to the barren and hospitable land. Swans were easy to harvest with atalases and nets, for they had to make frequent stops to refuel and rest their fledglings. Not all waterfowl survived the trip through the corridor, with juveniles and elderly waterfowl weakening in flight and plummeting to the snow and ice covered landscape to become encased in snowbanks that were scavenged years later as the earth warmed and melted the ice. Transcend hunters, while traveling quickly through the corridor, simply gathered up the weakened or dead birds before they became encased, or even after they became encased. It was waterfowl, after all, that sustained them through the corridors. Lands in present-day Canada and the northern tier of states, left bare by the late Pleistocene ice sheets, were gradually replenished by invertebrates carrying resting eggs and aquatic seeds that were carried and dispersed long distances by millions of springtime northbound migrating waterfowl, especially ducks, from droppings or trapped in feathers, bills, or legs. Each succeeding year, as newly deglaciated landscape appeared, waterfowl expanded into these lands, then flourishing with a variety of unique wetlands, that were conducive for safe breeding grounds during the summer season, along with providing food. In the meantime, waterfowl from western Siberia, migrating across Beringer and then to the States, carried with them wild rice seeds embedded in their feathers, or or deposited undigested wild rice seeds in their Eskimate, which seeded wild rice in this country. As various peoples from different parts of Siberia completed their journey through the corridor and emerged from the southern opening, which was present-day Montana and North Dakota. So they emerged from the southern openings into the new world. They discovered the northern Great Plains where they found meltwater lakes and potholes loaded with waterfowl and they knew how to harvest them using the same toolkits and techniques they had used for thousands of years. Here was the ancient Central Flyway where today 90% of the mid-continental population of white-fronted geese, 50% of its breeding mallards, and 30% of its breeding pintails gather each spring in its ancient Pleistocene landscape. Further southward were the playas of the southern high plains. As for waterfowl wintering in the Central Flyway, the playa region is second in importance only to the Texas Gulf Coast with mallards, pentails, green-winged teal, and American widgeons being the most abundant. To the west of the Central Flyway was the ancient Pacific Flyway, stretching some 10,000 miles from Alaska to South America, already re-established after the flooding of the Bering Land Bridge and opening of the McKenzie Corridor. Here they found a countless menagerie of swans, ducks, and geese stopping to rest, feed, and some to mate and nest. To the east was the Great Lakes, also abundant with waterfowl. They traveled further eastward, following and harvesting waterfowl that were resting and feeding at close gracial lakes as they made their way to New England and the coast, home to the black duck and canvasbacks. South of the Great Lakes, they discovered the Mississippi River floodplain, destined to become the most important waterfowl migratory pathway on the continent. The Mississippi Flyway. It is host to 60% of Americans' millions of migratory birds and the ancient home of the Mallard, where the Mississippi River, receiving its water from the Rocky Mountains to the Appalachians, acts as a giant funnel for the millions of migratory waterfowl and shorebirds following the Missouri, Ohio, Arkansas, White, Black, Red, and multitudes of other rivers which serve as landmarks and corridors for the migrating birds to their wintering grounds. Gathering of angels. This is what early radar operators call the echoes on their screens caused by migrating waterfowl. Today, nearly 6 billion birds migrate annually in North America alone, with 100 million being waterfowl that migrate in the fall. Only forty million return in the spring with many dying during migration. So this ends episode 28. And as I said, we started with the Pleistocene period. That's millions of years ago. And that took us up to about, whoa, 12,000 years ago. So we're in the modern times now. And it's what uh, all that ice and everything brought us is what we have nowadays. And we're in this interglacial period of warming. And an interglacial period can last anywhere from you know, 20 to 40,000 years, sometimes a little longer, but generally 20 to 40,000 years. So it looks like we're pretty early in this interglacial period. So what our future is, I'm not sure we really know. But anyway, we'll proceed forward. and We'll trust in our good Lord. Now, waterfowlers, I hope you take a few moments to visit my website, waterfowling.net, visit my blog there, which has a bunch of old stories, and also look at all my books that I've i uh, got published, uh, most of them are out of print. But if you see one you like, let me know because I buy them back and resell them for what I buy them back for because I want people to know our history. And that's the best way to know is just to keep these things in circulation. And as you know, if you've been tuning into my podcast, I'll usually leave you with a reflection. So here is this one. With Fall's arrival this fall, I hope you turn skyward and witnessed the manifest beauty of the clarion call of creation's magnificent, the Canada Geese, responding to an ancient inner compass urging them onward each year along the highways in the sky of their ancestors, wings beating in a sympathy of rhythmic movement about silhouetted bodies in chivron formation flying across a harvest moon, breathtaking and astonishingly beautiful. Their plaintiff honking melodies are no different than their ancestors of millennials ago that survived considerably and sometimes rapid climate change. A testimony and adaptation. Witness creation's beauty also the spring as millions of waterfowl wing their way southward. Listen to their plaintiff calling that some have called the voice of the Pleistocene. As Aldo Leopold said... Their annual return is the ticking of the geological clock as they endured and watched as other species became extinct. One can only ponder what message they take back every spring since modern man has occupied the new world. They who have come to us across the years and whom we are so exquisitely entwined within the spiritual world, I wonder what they are telling us regarding the changing world around them ere long, I also wonder will their ritual calling and honking melodies be but an echo from the crypts of time. It reminds me that on planet Earth we are the only ones that remain of the Ancient Ones, alone now for the last 30,000 years. Our ancestors, whose essence consisted first of being a hunter, adapted by having to cope with relentless and endless environmental instabilities and disruptions, Remarkably, they were able to turn it to their advantage. Will we do likewise and survive during this interglacial long summer that began about 12,000 years ago? I leave you waterfowlers and be sure to tune in every Tuesday for my podcast. So, so long and God bless.